and welcome back to From My Mom's Basement. I'm your host, David Chamberlain, and this is episode 28 of the podcast, titled Beach House, written by myself. Thank you all for listening. She, overweight and bleary-eyed, sits on the edge of her bed, her fingers clawed into the comforter, making shadowy ripples in the fabric. She wonders if she has the courage. No, she wonders in a more general sense how anyone has ever had the courage to do what she's going to do. Her hair is a furball, a wiry tornado knotted around her face, which, based on its shape and size, was once very beautiful. She is tired. These have been rough, stomach-sinking days a kind of unceasing descent into someplace dark and hollow and echoey. How do you tell someone that you no longer love them? She wonders. This is the question. The question. The question of all questions. She brings her legs up and sits cross-legged on the bed. Her toenails are long and yellowed and coarse like horse hooves. She feels ugly. He won't be home for a couple more hours. Is there enough time, she wonders? Can I gather enough courage in a couple hours? She feels herself begin to shake. She looks around the bedroom. Beige walls, light wood accents, a pile of dirty laundry in the corner. There's the old photo on the dresser, the one with the brassy gold frame and the two kids smiling on their wedding day. Unfocused showers of rice and streamers partly obscure their faces. The girl holds a bouquet. They're just walking out of the chapel. They're very young. Their necks are skinny and their faces are sharp. There's none of that middle-aged fat around their cheeks. No wrinkles. No stained teeth. People used to say they were a handsome couple. Used to. Where did those kids go? She wonders, kneading the comforter with her shaky hands. Where do all of these things go? The moments, the years, the days we live. Where do they go if not into that infinite wastebasket known only as the past? The past. A synonym, really, for death. For what happens to all these days and hours we live through once we've lived them? Surely, surely they must die, never to return. They are gone forever and remain only as indistinct stains, clumsy, half-blurred, half-contrived images we call memories. She drops her feet to the cold floor and stands up. She moves to the bedroom door. She smells something coming from the kitchen. Dirty plates left in the sink. They smell kind of like swamp water, soggy, fishy. She could wash them now, before he got home, but what would the point be? She folds her arms and ambles down the hallway, the hallway decorated with picture frames and photos of the past, and falls on the living room sofa. She'll sit here for a while. She'll gather her strength here. Winter sun, soft and diffused, as if through a baking sheet, streams through the window. This room is ugly, she thinks, noting how the stain of the wooden end tables clashes with the stain of the wood flooring. This is all very ugly, she thinks again. How could this have happened, she wonders. Was she not the same woman who fell in love with him? Was he not the same man? In many ways, she supposed, they were not the same. A slow evolution of character, 
over many months and years, had caused a certain shift, like the unnoticeable movement of continents, so that they were no longer the same people who had fallen in love so long ago. Perhaps he still loved her. Actually, she knew he still loved her. But she despised him. She hated everything there was about him, every atom of his character. She hated his skinny lips and his loud voice and the way he greeted people on the phone. She hated that he was aging and that he knew everything there was to know about her and the kind of deodorant he used. But even now, as she sits on the sofa in her cold house, she hears a little twinkly voice ask her, How could you hate him, the man who has done everything for you, who has given you his life? And then she thinks of the time at the beach before they were married. It was a cloudy three days spent in a beach house on the Cape. The house was a white wooden A-frame faded the color of sand. Inside, it was empty and dark and smelled kind of like sawdust and bleach. The floor was made up of long planks of rough wood, minimal furniture. The kitchen was barren, nothing in the cupboards, no refrigerator. Luckily, her husband, or fiancé at the time, brought along enough food and drink to satisfy an invading army. They stayed up late, drinking wine from coffee mugs and talking about nothing and everything, and feeling a kind of jittery happiness that bordered on euphoria. During the day, they did absolutely zilch. That's exactly why they went to the beach house, to do nothing. He would stand on the beach barefoot, his khaki pants rolled above his ankles and his linen shirt flapping in the wind. His hair was thick then, and auburn, and windswept. He watched the fog gather on the water, collecting like a wall of smoke and slithering in towards the shore. She loved everything about him then. He could do no wrong. She loved these moments when he'd stare out at nothing, thinking seriously about something that would always remain unsaid, unrevelated. It rained hard the second day, and they spent most of the day inside listening to rain beat against the roof and watching beads of water race down the window panes. They drank tea that tasted like dirt and ate cheese quesadillas fried on a pan. They snuggled up in the house's tiny bed and he wrapped his arms around her and she thought only of the future. In her mind, it shot out before her like a long streak of yellow light piercing the black currents of the unknown. How could anything go wrong? How could her life be anything but perfect with him at her side? All of the mind-eating fears of life were vanquished, toppled, as if before a great tide. The rain stopped by the early afternoon, and the sun broke through, burning off the thick clouds. Still, a tissue-paper mist remained low in the sky, diffusing the sunlight and making everything sad and oatmeal-colored. They grabbed a bottle of wine and a checkered, fiberglassy picnic blanket, and sat on the beach. Want to get in? He asked. Get in where? The water. Come on, it'll feel good. Refreshing. He smiled. She couldn't say no. There was no one she wanted to please so much as him. They undressed and let their raw chicken-colored skin out in the light, tossing their clothes in heavy clumps on the sand. Wasting no time at all, he plunged headfirst in the frothy, granite-gray waves. His face burst out of the water moments later, beaming, electric. He screamed, 
and she laughed. Come on, he shouted from the waves. His hair was saturated black and stuck flat against his face, shiny and long. Come on, chicken. She shivered and dove in. The water stung and made her gasp, but he found her in the water and took her in his arms, and they floated half-weightless in the waves, and she felt his warmth radiating against her body, fighting off the cold. Here they hung suspended, out of gravity and out of time. Here they held each other. Here was the moment they built their lives upon. Here was the memory she would shape her future around. As the sun shimmied against the horizon and her teeth started to chatter uncontrollably, they decided to get out of the water. Trudging back onto the beach, they grabbed their clothes and sprinted back to the house. Still naked, they scrambled through the cold house like frantic animals, looking for towels and trailing wet footprints on the hardwood behind them. They showered and dressed, and he made a clumsy little fire out of branches and twigs he had gathered earlier. Smoke filled the living room and made their eyes burn. Sorry, he said. Sorry. Soon enough, red fingers of flame poked out, swallowed up the smoke, and grew into a healthy blaze. They sat on the stiff sofa before the flame, their faces cast in a shuddering orange glow, and just held each other. The house grew dark and then turned black. Nothing existed out of the light of the fire. They didn't speak. They didn't move. An hour passed, and then... Oh no, Jack, she said, suddenly grabbing his forearm. What? What is it? My necklace. What necklace? The necklace I wear, my mom's necklace, you know, the one I wear. I think... I think I lost it. Well, where, where do you think you left it? Is it in the bathroom? I think it might be on the beach. Well, let's let's check the bathroom and stuff first. Okay, she said, panicking. They searched the house for the necklace. Nothing in here, she shouted from the bathroom. He was on the floor in the bedroom, looking under the bed frame. I don't see it in here either. She ran into the bedroom and found him on the hardwood, his cheek pressed against the splintery grain. His back was arched up like a cat's, and she could see the spokes of his spinal cord poking through his linen shirt. She thought he looked like a child. It's gotta be outside somewhere, she said, wild-eyed. He got up off the floor and hugged her. Her hair was still wet. We'll find it, he said. Don't worry. Go sit by the fire and I'll go out and look for it. Well, you can't right now. Wait till morning. I, It won't go anywhere. Maybe, he said but not if the tide comes up and takes it. Oh, there's a, there's a flashlight in the pantry. I saw it. Go sit by the fire. I'll, I'll go out and find your necklace. Don't worry. And she knew he would. She knew, deep down in the red cobwebs of her bone marrow, that there was nothing he couldn't do. No task was too large. No challenge was too complex or daunting. He could do anything. Okay, she said. Okay. She curled up on the sofa that smelled like seawater and dish soap and looked out the window towards the beach. Her face was reflected in the black window pane, pulsing orange like lava flow. But beyond her face, out on the beach, she saw a beam of light dancing, searching every inch of sand. Every so often, the beam would stop abruptly and focus on a point like a UFO tractor beam. Then it would drop close to the ground where she could just make out a hand 
sifting through the sand, tossing particulates before the light. He'd been out there for a long time. She guessed he'd be out there a while longer. Watching him through the window, seeing his silhouette run around all clumsy in the dark, she felt her love for him become something elemental, like hydrogen or carbon, something that would outlast her and humanity and even the earth itself. It was unassailable, implacable, permanent. Her very identity seemed to waver in the face of such a tectonic, foundational force. This feeling ballooned in her chest, and she fell asleep on the sofa, watching the flashlight zoom on the horizon like a meteor. The next morning she woke to a dim yellow light. The fire was out, and she was cold, still on the sofa. She heard the gas stove click on and the whisper of flames rushing to life. There he was, in the kitchen, making eggs. His hair was frayed and matted. He looked tired. What time did you come back in? she asked. He turned away from the frying pan and looked at her. His eyes were puffy and red like blisters. Oh, not too late. I found it, by the way. He went to the kitchen counter, pulled the necklace off the countertop, and let it dangle in air like a jewelry salesman. This is it, right? Yes, she screamed. Yes, I can't believe you found it. That wasn't true. She knew he would. She knew he was capable of anything. Two months later, they were married. Now, she sits on her sofa in her ugly living room and tries to conjure those old feelings. But they've gone rotten, expired. There's nothing left in her heart now but a certain stiffness, a rigidity that feels hollow and dark and inorganic, like a living creature that has died and rotted and fossilized. How she hates him now. He'll never be that young man again. He'll never be attractive or brave or charismatic ever again. He's lost everything, she thinks. She catches a passing glance of herself in the foggy mirror across the room. She sees her face, really sees it, and wants to cry. Her cheeks sag like sacks of flour, and her lips are surrounded by wrinkles like the spokes of a bicycle tire. She thinks she's hideous, and, in her disgust, has what you might call a revelation. She realizes then that living with someone for so long transforms them into an iteration of yourself, a reflection of you. They become you. So that no matter how you feel about your partner, whether full of love or full of hate, you will eventually export all thoughts of yourself onto them. And they, no matter how wonderful or perfect, will seem to sprout those characteristics which you despise in yourself. So that eventually, the only major difference between yourself and your partner is that, when the hatred becomes too much, you can actually leave your partner. Now she hears his footsteps at the front door. They sound like funeral bells. He's home early, very early. His keys jingle and scratch against the door lock, and she suddenly shoulders the incalculable weight of her marriage and her past and her future. The door opens and he steps inside, Cold afternoon light spills in behind him. His hair is graying and thin and plays in the air like seaweed in a current. He sees her sitting on the sofa in the living room and smiles. Hey, he says, 
got off early today. He unravels his scarf and stomps snow off his loafers. His belly peeks out between the flaps of his overcoat. He's an old man, she thinks. But his eyes, his eyes are still the same. They're the same cloudy gray eyes that spotted her necklace all that time ago. What have you been up to today? He asks. We need to talk, she says. Thank you for listening. That was episode 28 of the podcast titled Beach House. This episode was written, edited, produced, and narrated by myself, with the music being by Kevin McLeod. Thank you again for listening.